You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and we, of course, are remembering Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today, which, for me, um, I'm a woman of a certain age. I'm 63 years old. I grew up in Atlanta. Um, 1968 was a pivotal year for me because uh, on the little black and white TV in our kitchen, we watched the the procession of the after the death of Martin Luther King Jr. and then two months later the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and I always say to young people who talk about how terrible it is now and and look every it is a sign of age when you start saying you know the young people don't have it right but but I tell them about some of the things that happened in the 60s in the United States, the assassination of President Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, the shootings at Kent State were in the spring of 1970. I mean, there was a lot of turmoil during that period of time. But what was so great about Dr. King was that he was uh, nonviolent. He talked about he uplifted the messages that he had were positive in our church yesterday they played a number of speeches um and they still resonate today and there's still work to be done and you know what we're human beings so there's always work to be done ernie suggs is here with me today uh he's the race reporter for the atlanta journal and constitution and he was at ebenezer baptist church so, Ernie, for you, how many times have you been at this service at Ebenezer Baptist Church? Uh, well, uh, well, thanks. For, thank you very much for having me this morning. Yes, uh, welcome I've back. <laughs> thank you. I've been in Atlanta since 1997, so I guess I've been at this service for 25 years. So I pretty much cover it every year, and every year it's a uh, it's it's a it's a chance to kind of reflect. It's a kind of chance to kind of. Uh, look back at the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and just to see how far this country has gone. So yesterday was no exception to that. And today they're going to have another service at the church. Um, So it was good. It was good. So um, we were attending church yesterday with a student that we're uh, we have this year from Sweden, who's an, an, on a she's a rotary a rotary uh, scholarship student, and so she obviously knows of Martin Luther King Jr. For, as a historical figure, but didn't know that much about him. And uh, when I shared with her how young he was when he was assassinated, I think it's hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, I'm 63 years old. I don't. I'm not going to ask you how old you are, but you have gray hair, <laughs> and that's okay. I'll yeah. never. I'll never have gray hair. But that's a whole other story um but he was 38 years old when he was assassinated i mean that is hard to believe yeah i mean i I think that you know when you look at history and you look at people it's it's often difficult to understand how young these people were or how old they were you know he was 26 years old when he started the montgomery bus boycott he was 39 when he died he's he's he has been away from us longer than he was actually on earth so that just kind of goes to show how important he was. But it also goes to show how, how at that time, leadership took different roles and had different faces. You know, when I talked about that he was 26 years old when he started, he wasn't supposed to be the leader of the Montgomery bus boycotts um, because he was a young, new preacher. And people thought he was too young and too green. 
Um, so, you know, for him to be able to do all that kind of stuff while he was a young man, to die at the age of 39, which is, I'm, you know, I'm 55. You didn't ask how, you, you didn't want to ask how old I was, but I'm 55 years old. And, you know, it's amazing to understand that I'm older than Martin Luther King was when he passed away because he just had that great of a significant role in this country's uh, path. But don't you think it drove him that he sort of knew in the back of his mind that the path he was taking could lead to him having a shorter life? Uh, and yeah. and he got more done because of that. I mean, he got more done in his 39 years than most of us would do yes. in 100. He was very prophetic. Um, as some of your listeners may know, I just uh, this in 2022, I published a book with Andrew Young, The Many Lives of Andrew Young. So I spent a lot of time with him uh, over the last few years. Oh, one and of my favorite Young, people. Oh, yeah, he's great. Andy Young talks about how they would talk about death and how they understood that what they were doing and how they were trying to change this country was dangerous and that people didn't like what they were doing and that at any time, any one of them could be dead. And Martin Luther King Jr. often said that he wasn't going to live to 40 years old. And and Andy Young tells these great stories. It's kind of, it's great in a sense in, in, in how you kind of sometimes have to laugh at pain, but he tells these great stories about how Martin Luther King Jr. would, when he was joking with his staff, would preach their funerals. So he would kind of play preach their funerals and talk about how you know, how he was going to have to think of words to say to make Andy Young or to make Hosea Williams sound good to the public because they were, you know, you know, yeah. not good. No, people. I know. I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. We had a gentleman by the name of Clarence Wagner who um, mm-hmm. retired here, who had been a uh, uh, contemporary of Daddy King and knew Martin Luther King Jr. And he wrote this book called In the Footsteps of Giants uh, uh-huh. that. Uh, we talked about a number of times up until his death, and he's the one that, while I had studied Martin Luther King Jr. and, of course, was aware of him because I grew up in Atlanta, um, he was the one that said, Martha, no, you've read all the stuff that people have told you to read. You need to read the letter from the Birmingham jail. And, Mm -hmm. you know, because it will change your life. And it did. I mean, because as a person of faith, it was convicting, you know, of people of faith on both sides, black and white people of faith, because they didn't want to rock the boat. You know, they didn't want to rock the boat. And and Dr. King was all about safely rocking the boat. (laughs) Yeah. And I think a lot of people get a misconception about what uh, nonviolence was and how radical nonviolence is. And how when you are nonviolent, that's a radical statement in, in terms of, 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 of being aggressive in how you, um, how you move forward. So when he saw these pastors, and, and as he wrote in a letter from a Birmingham jail, not doing anything and not saying anything, that was something that was offensive to him and, and on, on a spiritual level and, and, you know, something that he wanted to, be, to change. So I think that when you talk about nonviolence, when you talk about his legacy – all these things kind of play into the role and in, in who he was and who he became and where we are now. So, Ernie, you were at uh, the service yesterday. This was the first time yes. that a sitting president had spoken at a Sunday service. Obviously, yes. many presidents have been to the Martin Luther King um, uh, service that you'll be attend, or I don't know if you're attending it or not, but that will be there, uh, be go on later today. Uh, yes. You know, President Biden is, I mean, he's just so awkward in the way he speaks. And I I find it just interesting how he, I don't know. I just feel like that he maybe wasn't the best person to do a sermon on that day. But tell me how he was received. 
Well, I mean, I think he was the best person to do a sermon on that day because he's the president of the United States. I don't think there's any better person to do that. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's a he's a leader of the free world. Yeah, he's awkward in terms of how he speaks. You know, he has a stutter and he's you know he he doesn't use a teleprompter. He didn't use a teleprompter yesterday. He his speech was written out, but I think he was received very well. I mean, you know, as you know uh, very well, the Democratic Party is very uh, dependent and appreciative of the black vote. And nowhere is that more important than in Atlanta and in Georgia, and especially in terms of um, the person who invited him to speak, the Reverend Raphael <laughs> Warnock, who is now the junior senator from Georgia. So all of this kind of plays in, plays uh, a role. And he was received very well. I mean, the congregation respected him. Um, you know, in the great tradition of black churches, you know, when he was speaking, you know, he was being implored to go on and preach and, and, and say it and all that all that stuff that you see in the black church every Sunday. So, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't see a problem with him having come there yesterday um, because, you know, he is a president and he understands from a political and from a personal standpoint, he understands how important that moment was. Did he take any press questions? Was there a gaggle or anything like that? No, there was not. Yeah. Was, yeah. uh, would there have been, I mean, you've covered these before. Have there been before with these speakers that come along or is it always just, just the the program and that's it? Uh, well, it depends on who the speaker is. I mean, you know, as you know, these presidential visits are very tightly choreographed. Yes, they so, are. You know, <laughs> yeah. So pretty much after his speech, he went in the back and he took some photos and then we were, you know, shuttled back off to the airport. So I think that uh, in other times, you, you, I mean, you know, if you have President Clinton or President, well, not Obama, but, you know, when you have these other presidents who were speaking at that Monday event, there may have been an opportunity for a press gaggle at the end. Um, when Biden and Kamala Harris came uh, to Atlanta, I think it was last year, a couple of years ago, um, there was an opportunity to, you know, shout questions at him. There was a, a bit of a press gaggle. But this right here was pretty much an event. He spoke and he pretty much uh, left. I mean, well, he didn't pretty much. He did mingle with the crowd, which I thought was very fascinating. And in terms of he kind of waded into the crowd and took selfies. And again, that's kind of that reception that he was able to get. As I said, he was received very, very well. But in terms of a press gaggle, that that did not happen. Well, it'll be interesting because he'll probably enjoy the respite that he had then yesterday, because I think he's going to get a lot of questions from the press this week on other things. Um, yeah, I mean, this was a, a tough week for him, as you know, as you're alluding to with the, you know, the, the revelations about the, the papers that are found in his house and in his office. So Sunday was kind of a break. You know, every, I think everybody yes. needs a break. Everybody needs a rest. Everybody so. needs a break. That's for sure. Yeah. Ernie Suggs, yeah. I appreciate you being available and thank you so much for your perspective. And you know what? Plug your book again, because I think people oh. ought to get out and read it. Oh, yes. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, my book is called The Many Lives of Andrew Young. It's a, um, a coffee table biography of the former ambassador and former Atlanta mayor. It's available at uh, Amazon Books. And if you want to get a signed copy of it, if you live in Atlanta, if you want to get a signed copy from signed by me and Andrew Young, you can go to Acapella Books. And you can just pick it up right there, and it's already signed. You don't need my signature, but Andy Young's signature's in it. So Absolutely. I mean, he came up yeah. here when he was thinking about running for Senate in 2002, and uh, he was just amazing. And I've seen him several times since then, but he says, oh, yeah, Martha, I don't write anything down. That's why I have to carry this recorder around in my pocket, because um, I don't write any of my speeches down, and then, you know, my secretary has to transcribe it. <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> Ernie Suggs, thanks for being with us today.
Thank you very much and have a good week. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and we figured it was a good time to kind of update things related to COVID-19. And uh, yesterday morning, I was up early getting ready for the show, as I always do. And I saw Dr. Amesha Dalja uh, from Johns Hopkins on Fox & Friends first. And I stopped and watched, and I thought, wow, this is part of the discussion that we are missing. And uh, so I reached out to him and very quickly got this set up for him to call in today. Dr. Um, Adalja, thank you so much for, for being with us today. And, and also thank you for the work that Johns Hopkins has been doing throughout the pandemic because it's as if they have been a voice of reason throughout the pandemic where they have, it appears to me anyway, they've looked at all the science and made good recommendations based on it. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you, and thank thank you for having me. So uh, let's talk first about um, about COVID cases and how they're measured and that kind of thing, because one of the things you brought up in the interview yesterday was that it does appear that they, we need to look back and see if among the deaths with COVID, were they people that died of COVID or they did they die with COVID? After the fact, can you look at that, and do we need to know that number? Well, I think it's a kind of a complicated issue, and what, what happens is that many it's more about hospitalizations likely being overcounted, because what happens is many hospitals still routinely test every patient that comes in, no matter what, for COVID, because it's important for uh, what personal protective equipment people wear, how they're isolated. And a lot of people, there's at least in the Omicron era, there's been a lot of incidental admissions to the hospital, meaning people are there for something else. They test positive for COVID. They don't get any treatment for COVID, but it's, it's something that they, they have. And there, there is a question of whether or not that's leading to overclassification of, of deaths. And there, there is some controversy whether or not that's the case because, and it was a major uh, opinion piece in the Washington Post regarding that and there's been some pushback on, on and it may be the fact that that hospitalizations are definitely being overcounted but deaths may not necessarily be overcounted or there, there may be less of an overcounting of deaths it's harder to overcount deaths and if you look at states the excess mortality how many people you expect to be dying based on different uh, on the same time three years ago for example there still is a signal for excess deaths. So I, I'm less concerned about overcounting of deaths than I am about overcounting of, of hospitalizations. But it's really important to understand that there are limitations to our data, and it may take some time for all the dust to settle uh, before we know exactly what the wh- where the death toll actually stands and, and what it is like right now uh, versus earlier times in the pandemic when it was much more horrific. You know, there are about 220,000 primary care physicians in the United States, and they were probably doing all kinds of things at the beginning of this and throughout that were treatments they were trying with their patients. And um, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, and I want you to tell me if I am, it seems to me we didn't do enough of, of, of canvassing physicians to find out what they were actually doing that was working in the treatment of COVID, that we were so focused on getting to the vaccine, which was important. I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted, the whole nine yards. It was important, but it seemed like we were discounting treatments that maybe could have helped. 
I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think that the vaccine was, as you say, the most important factor in being able to manage COVID-19. And when it came to trying treatments, there, there were multiple efforts to try and find oral drugs that may or may not have had activity against COVID, from hydroxychloroquine to ivermectin to uh, fluvoxamine, and they all basically failed when they were put through rigorous clinical trials, and it took some time. So you have to think about when you're trying to make an antiviral for a virus, it's very difficult because viruses are so small, they only have a little bit of their own machinery, and you've got to get something that specifically targets them. So it took some time until drugs like Paxlovid could could be manufactured, could be made, so it's not surprising that most of those antivirals or, or anti-inflammatory compounds that people maybe it may have been trying because they were desperate in the early days when they were put through really rigorous studies, that signal that they were beneficial fell away. I, I do think we need more treatments. I think the next generation of COVID-19 treatments need to be better than Paxlovid. They need to be able to be given to people without drug-drug interactions. They need to decrease symptoms as well as uh, decreasing serious illness they have to taste better um all of that has to happen and i think we're going to get second generation drugs but the priority was was the vaccine because when you think about an infectious disease prevention is always 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 better than treatment if you can prevent people from getting severely ill that's that's always going to be prioritized over treatments especially when it was a novel virus for which there was no off-the-shelf drug that was predicted to work and none that actually did work uh when it came down to rigorous clinical trials so what is the status of the vaccine today as far as its efficacy and who should take it and how you should determine if you get the vaccine so i I, the vaccine in the omicron era is less about prevention of infection early on it was preventing infection even up until the alpha and delta variant times it was preventing infection but omicron is just a different uh has so many different mutations that make the vaccine less able to block infection. But what the vaccine does really, really well is prevention of severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And that's really what it was designed to do. That's what why we vaccinated high-risk people first, because we were worried about severe disease. That still works. So I think in the United States, maybe about 68, in the high 60 percentages have been vaccinated. I think everybody should be fully vaccinated. Where I differ with some of the guidance is I think that boosting really only makes sense for high-risk people. So people who have, uh, that are over, above the age of 60 or so, who have some high-risk condition like being overweight, obese, heart disease, lung disease, immunocompromised, pregnant. Those are the people that really benefit from the boosters. I don't think that a young, healthy person really benefits from the boosters because they don't have a very high risk of severe disease. So I think everybody should be vaccinated. I think targeting boosting, targeted boosters to high-risk individuals, that's, that's the optimal policy in my mind. You know, I had a paranumonic effusion in November of 2020. I was preaching all during 2020 to take care of your whole health because COVID isn't the worst thing out there. Uh, and I ended up getting a paranumonic effusion and having to have emergency surgery and was in the hospital for about 10 days. And it was interesting because I was there kind of when COVID was kind of coming back again. And so the nurses would figure out I was a person that talked on the radio some and they'd come in and ask me questions. And and it was very interesting because uh, it was a different time. And then, of course, the, the, the vaccine came out after that. And 
Uh, my doctor said you should wait about 90 days, but because you had this lung problem, you should get the vaccine. And I did. And my husband is uh, in a primary care physician. He got the vaccine fairly early. But it was an interesting time, and it's so refreshing to hear the long-term kind of scientific view of where we are right now. And Johns Hopkins has been a really big part of that. Yes, I think, you know, you there was the fog of war, and now I think we're starting to get some understanding about all of the different aspects of COVID-19, where, thing, where certain treatments are beneficial, where they're not, uh, where the vaccine is maximally beneficial, what this virus is doing in terms of evolution. And I think we're, we're in general in this country in a much better place because what we've done is sort of decoupled cases from hospitalizations and deaths, meaning in the past when we would see a wave in the pre-vaccine era of cases, we knew that the hospitals were going to be crushed a couple weeks later. That's not happening. And that's because of all the immunity in the population from, from prior infections, from vaccinations, from boosters, from combinations of those, plus uh, drugs like Paxlovid that, that keep people out of the hospital as well. So I think it's really uh, extraordinary how advanced we've become at dealing with COVID and understanding COVID uh, in, in, just, uh, in just three years. This is a virus that wasn't known to science before December 31st, 2019. No doubt about it. Is it going to become like the flu where we have an annual shot that comes out that people will have to decide whether they're going to get that are related to COVID? That may be the case, and it may be more so for high-risk individuals. Because like I said, people who got the primary vaccine series that are, that are healthy with no medical conditions, they're still protected against serious illness. There likely will be needs for updating of the vaccine, just like this bivalent booster. But I don't know if that's going to be for everybody or it's going to be for high-risk individuals. I think we're still working through that policy and what the best policy might be. But overall, we need better vaccines. We need vaccines that provide more what we call sterilizing immunity, protection against infection. Um, we need vaccines that uh, maybe can be get, that are more universal, that are able to work against all the variants. So, so it's going to be some time before all of this vaccine policy gets settled, and hopefully technology will continue to deliver better vaccine products uh, than our first-generation vaccines, which are really great at preventing severe disease. But I think there's room for improvement in terms of preventing infection and uh, durability against the, the variants. Dr. Amesh Adalja, thank you so much for being with us today. He's from Johns Hopkins University. He also uh, teaches at the University of Pittsburgh. We appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and you can join us on the phones at 770-535-2911. You can also text us at that number. And look, here's the deal here. There is a political side to this, and there is a legal side to this. Uh, And this, I mean, is the handling of documents that are classified. This is much more like the Hillary Clinton situation than it was the Donald Trump situation. And this is more like, I mean, President Biden's situation. President Biden had classified documents that have been in his possession for a number of years. So who knows if they're still classified or not as far as the information that are in that's in them. He had no ability to classify documents as the vice president, as did Hillary Clinton. Now, Hillary Clinton went to much greater lengths to cover up what she did than Joe Biden has. But the question that was asked earlier 
was very interesting because it was asked, you allowed lawyers that didn't have classified clearance to go through these documents and identify these documents and get them out. And on the other side, with President Trump, you kind of killed a fly with a sledgehammer. Okay? So it is clear that the Department of Justice overreacted in its... in its involvement with Donald Trump. And I know people like Shondell Summer and others will talk about what Donald Trump did as the worst in the world. But Donald Trump was just out of office. He had been the president of the United States. He had the right to classify or declassify. He's wrong to say he could just think about it and it's declassified. Now that he needs to keep his blankety blank mouth shut about this because he's saying things that are hurting himself. He is being the child That was right. And because he's going to keep running his mouth, he's going to make himself wrong. But he does that. So Donald Trump is wrong that he could just think about it and declassify the documents. Okay, that's not true. But up until 12 o'clock on the 20th of January, 2021, he had the ability to classify and declassify documents. Now... The documents that were taken down to Mar-a-Lago and there were talks in place, what the Justice Department should have done was continued those talks. Okay, because clearly what they've done is given more latitude to a guy who was a vice president and had no classified clearance just because he says he handles documents better. And President Trump is right when he says that Mar-a-Lago with Secret Service being there is a more secure environment than Joe Biden's garage. Okay, so here's the problem that Democrats have. And this is a political problem, because let me just tell you, as far as the legal side of it goes, the Congress doesn't have any power. I mean, they can recommend subpoenas and they can recommend charges and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, they can't bring people quote, to justice. The Congress can't. The independent investigators, they're giving them different terms, but that's basically what they are. They can also recommend charges, and the Department of Justice can actually bring charges. But then they still have to be tried in courts of law. We don't have separate courts for the Justice Department, for the Congress. We have one set of courts of law. So, The problem that Democrats have is that this looks really bad for them. This looks like they were incensed and indignant and talking about how could this happen and gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands and and wearing of shirts and all of that stuff over how could this horrible man, Donald Trump, have brought these documents and he is not being he is not being held accountable They were doing all of that. They were doing all of that up until about, let's see, what was it? We found out about this last Thursday. That's about the time that they were doing that until. Okay, now the same people, the same people, Adam Schiff, the worst guy in the world as far as this stuff is concerned. Okay, it's like, well, you know, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. We got to go after all this, guys, and it needs to be held accountable. And then... His own press people on three different occasions have said all of the searches have been complete. Oh, by the way, we found some more. All of the searches have been complete. 
Oh, by the way, we found some more. Now, granted, it's a few documents here and a few documents there. But we still don't know exactly what Donald Trump had. So I don't know how to compare it. And I, again, from a legal standpoint, there is no comparison because Donald Trump was the president of the United States and has a whole different set of rules than Joe Biden did as vice president. None of this happened while he was president. The discovery of it was while he was president. The actual crime, if there was one, was not committed while he was president. And I guarantee you there will be some additional rules about vice presidents after all this is said and done. Okay, so um, the problem here is political. And here's my, you know, I know you friends of mine out there that think I don't buy into conspiracy theories enough because I generally think there's a reasonable explanation for most things. And most of the time, the simplest explanation is the correct one. When you have to go through and you have to add layers and layers and layers to things, it's really more like a Tom Clancy movie than real life. Okay. I'm watching this uh, show on Netflix called The Recruit. Have you watched this yet, Caleb, The Recruit? Okay. So it's about a guy that's being trained for the CIA. And there's a lot of layers in this one. Okay. Because that's what we want to believe it's like. But it's really not. The problem that Joe Biden has is now his own people, the mainstream media, have turned against him. Now his own people believe that he should not run for re-election. That's not what they're saying, but that is the deeper meaning in how they're covering this. So here's my prediction, okay? And I'm lousy at this, but I'm going to throw it out there just based on on things. I think when it comes time to, the, by the time we get to the South Carolina primary next year, Joe Biden and Donald Trump will not be in this election. That's my prediction. I'm not saying they won't start. I'm not saying they won't think about it. I'm not saying they won't campaign a little. But by the time we get to the South Carolina primary, neither one of them will be in the election. Uh, And I think it'll be very interesting to watch because they both have been shown to have problems that people just don't want to deal with. They don't want to deal with them. They would rather have a young, fresh Ron DeSantis, a young, fresh Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, um, you know, uh, heck, Christy Nome on the Republican side. They would rather on the Democrat side, God help me, have Gavin Newsom. I, please, please, Democrats, nominate Gavin Newsom, please. It would just make my day if you were that short-sighted of a guy that has run California into the ground. And you know what's amazing about Californians? Is even though he has run them into the ground, they still voted against a recall and reelected him. They like him. And I think Democrats think because he's tall and good looking and he kind of looks like he came out of central casting for who should be president. Um, that that he can just make people look the other way. Ignore what you see over here, people. Because this is what I'm going to tell you. So I would love it if Gavin Newsom, but there are other Democrats. There's Amy Klobuchar, who would be very difficult. There's Pete Buttigieg, which would be easy to beat and not because he's a gay man with twin children. It is because he has been incompetent in all the jobs, including being mayor of St. Paul, that he's been in. He sounds great. He gives a great speech. 
but he hasn't actually done the work and he can't stand up to scrutiny. He doesn't like to be questioned. Now, he does, in fairness to him, he does go into the lion's den and go on Fox News with Brett Baer and does long interviews. So I give him credit for that. He gets some credit points for that. But that's another one people are looking at. So there's a number of people on the Democratic side. Joe Manchin. Now, Joe Manchin would be interesting because if he ran as a Democrat, he would be a Democrat that would get some Republican votes in primaries. He would be a Democrat that would get some independent votes in primaries. And he would bring us back to full use of energy, fossil fuels for energy. And he would get some Republicans to vote for him for that. Joe Manchin could be like the the one you don't expect that could come up there on the Democratic side. Rick Scott is also another one. We're going to be talking to him tomorrow. You've seen his ads through all the playoff games and that kind of thing. He's working on a presidential campaign. And Rick Scott is an interesting guy because he is not um, pretty. You know, he's kind of you know, kind of awkward. He isn't exciting the way Ron DeSantis is, but he knows how to get things done. And um, it'll be very interesting to see if he ends up throwing his hat in the ring because he's been governor of Florida for two terms. And now he's been a senator and he grew one of the biggest hospital country hospital companies in the country. So it'll be interesting to see. We're going to watch all of that. And we're going to try to have these candidates on as much as we can so that you can hear them individually without the bubble up around them. 2024 is just around the corner. And we're going to know in about 14 months what the field is going to look like. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and it's always great to talk to my old friend, Senator Rick Scott. He was formerly the governor of Florida for two terms. He uh, built and ran a hospital corporation. The story is just amazing uh, that of that story of building that company. Uh, and he has been a real fighter for the American people. Uh, his newest uh, initiative is Rescue America, and we welcome you back to the program, Senator. How are you? Martha, it's always great to talk with you. I mean, we look we we can't be a speed bump. I mean, we we got to start we got to start changing things. I, you know what I'm what fascinates me is why aren't Americans just mad as hell about the border, the inflation, the debt? I mean, just this wasteful, wasteful spending. I'm just, I actually am surprised that Americans aren't just madder. Uh, and, and getting out there and say, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I mean, I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm fed up with this. Well, I think we're overwhelmed. I think the average person feels like since COVID that it has just been one thing after another. Now, granted, you and I both know that these problems were developing long before COVID, but it feels like one thing after another. And, you know, this whole debt ceiling number, I mean, you and I started talking when the debt was <laughs> around $12 trillion. Okay. So right. now it's over, it's more like $32 trillion. Yep. And here's the argument that they're going to give you about the debt ceiling. Okay. We have to vote to increase it because we've already voted on the bills that caused the debt to go up. What do you say to that? Because you know, that's what your colleagues say. Well, first off, it's not true. I mean, we we have a we have a decision to make. 
whether we want to raise the debt ceiling. Now, what if, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, what it will force us to do is balance our budget. Like what you have to do and what businesses have to do, what every family has to do. If we balance our budget, guess what? The debt doesn't go up. We don't have to raise the debt ceiling. And we can do it. And, you know, the federal government right now, the Biden administration, has the ability to prioritize payments. Look at the last omnibus bill. Just unbelievable wasteful spending. Let's stop. Let's just stop. I did this. You know, people say, well, is it, it's hard. Well, when I became governor of Florida, I walked into a bad economy. Uh, people were leaving our state. We had $4 billion budget deficit. And guess what? We balanced the budget. And by balancing the budget, making the government more accountable, reducing regulation, taxes, fees, we grew the economy. And then we had record revenues to do the things we care about. Like, don't we want to preserve Social Security and Medicare? I do. You can't do it without a good economy. But we're killing our economy with this inflation, which is caused by reckless spending and taxes. And, and, and the interest rates have gone up. Why? Because government can't live within its means. So you've got about a quarter of the budget, which is what we argue about, the, what they call discretionary, which is all the, the departments. Because they don't vote on the rest of it. We they can vote on the rest of it. That's the point. That's what I wanted to ask you. How do we put a process in place to where we vote and discuss and talk about the, quote, automatic pilot parts of the budget? Well, we, we should actually have a budget meeting. I'm on the budget committee. Bernie Sanders is the chair. Right? And so he did we have budget meetings the last two years? No. No, because he doesn't want to talk about the budget. They want to pass these massive spending bills that no one's ever read. They don't want to do budgets. We should do a real budget. Then we would have amendment votes. We would say, how do we preserve Medicare? How do we preserve Social Security? How do we make sure these programs last? But they don't want to do that. And by the way, people think that, oh, we can just keep borrowing our money. No, we can't. People that buy our bonds decide if we can keep borrowing money. What happens when they say, you know what, I'm not sure the taxpayers of the United States of America are going to keep paying, you know, we'll keep paying all this interest expense. What happens when that day comes? Then what are we going to do when no one wants to buy our bonds because they don't trust that we can pay for them? That will happen if we don't keep, if we don't stop spending money. Biden administration has a plan over the next nine years, the debt will go to $45 trillion dollars. Now, think about that. The only way we pay for this is through increased taxes, that we can increase our taxes by building our economy. It's not happening. Or by higher rates, which, by the way, is just going to hurt, hurt the economy even more and hurt every family in the country. And the inflation, it's hurting the poorest families in our country the most. I mean, family like mine growing up, I think of my mom every day when I think about inflation, struggling to put food on the table to pay for, you know, five kids. That's what's going on in this country. We, I'm, what I don't get, Martha, is why aren't people matter? I mean, your government is hurting you every day what they're doing. Now, in 2011, Senator Marco Rubio, your colleague from Florida, put forth a, a, a plan to talk and look at Social Security and Medicare. It never went anywhere because they did the, what they always do, which is, you know, say that, you know, you're trying to throw grandma off the cliff and, you know, all of that sort of thing. Um, what we need to look at Medicare and Social Security not that doesn't mean we need to get rid of it. I want to keep it, too. I'm 63 years yeah. old. My husband's 68 years old. At some point in time, we expect to draw Social Security and to use Medicare. Um, what what do you think we should do to start the discussion? First, let's acknowledge we have a problem. It's like, it's like alcoholism. 
the first step of the 12 steps is you got a problem. We have a spending problem in this country. So right now, if we do nothing, which is what the Democrats want to do, do nothing. Then Social Security will go bankrupt in 10 or 12 years. Medicare goes bankrupt in four years. So so they are telling American, the American public, and the American public is not listening. They're telling the American public they don't care. So there will be an automatic 20% reduction in Social Security payments in whatever, whatever goes bankrupt in 10 or 12 years. And the Democrats are saying, we don't care. Let's start by saying we have a problem. Then let's say, what are the best ideas to make sure we keep all the benefits we would like? What's, so what's our plan? So I put out in my, you can go to rescueamerica.com. What I said is, why don't we start by telling people how we're going to preserve the programs? I mean, you, you elect senators and congressmen to run these programs. I mean, you Americans rely on these programs. Wouldn't it be beneficial if, if the American public saw what exactly what we're going to do to fix them? I mean, every year, Congress, here's what it says. Force Congress to issue a report every year telling the public what they plan to do when Social Security and Medicare go bankrupt, which they're going bankrupt. The Democrats have no plan, right? Their plan is raise the debt ceiling until, well, they don't believe, they don't personally believe that people will stop buying our bonds. They will. At some point, the, the people will say, I don't trust that they can pay the, the interest back. Do you buy, have you ever bought something that says, well, I'm not going to put, uh, you know, put my money in that because I don't think I'll get my money back. No, you don't do that. That's exactly what's going to happen at some point. So I've gone to Rescue America, and it's rescueamerica.com is where you can go. You can find the 12-point plan. And you put number one on the list, education. Tell us why you did that. Well, if you, if you think about it, the future is all of our, it's just our kids. I mean, I'm, I'm blessed. My and I got married. We were 19 years old. We have seven grandkids. And our future is, what are these kids going to grow up to be? And what kind of country are we going to have for them? And so I want our kids to get to great schools. I want them to say the Pledge of Allegiance. I want them to salute the flag. When, it, when one of my uh, grandsons was four, we were at a museum. And they said, I'll give you a sticker if you can say the Pledge of Allegiance. I didn't know he knew it. He knew the whole Pledge of Allegiance at four years old. I was really proud of him. Uh, let, let, let parents choose the best school for their kid. Every kid is different. My, one of my daughters has five boys. You know what? They're all different. You know, and there's probably going to be different schools. They'll go to different schools because they have different goals. They have different needs. That's number one. Then number two is let's stop this 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 racism attitude, separating people by race. I don't think government should ever be able to ask you about your race, your ethnicity, your skin color on any government forms. You know what? I want I want to think like Martin Luther King. What he said. Let's judge people by the, their character, not, not the color of their skin. That's what I want to do. That's what that's the country I want to live in. We can we can make this the country we can all be most proud of if we start fighting for the things we actually really believe in, and don't let our politicians off the hook. Don't let them say, "Oh, I'm care I care about the budget," and then watch them go up in D.C. and say, well, "I don't care about the budget." Stop that. Don't hold, hold them accountable. So how are your colleagues receiving this in the Senate? Because you've got a lot of hard work to do in the United States Senate. Well, here's, here's where we are. It's a 51-49. 51 Democrats, 49 Republicans. Guess what? They need nine Republicans to vote with them for all these spending bills. They'll need nine Republicans to vote with the Democrats to, to raise the debt ceiling. So guess what? Let's do something. Let's say, you know what? We don't, we don't want to default on the debt. 
So there's a variety of things we can do. We can, one, balance a budget, which would be the smartest thing we can do. But if we're not going to balance a budget, let's pass some legislation that will force us to act fiscally responsible down the road. So I've got one bill. It's called the uh, Full Faith and in, in, uh, Credit Act, which would say we will prioritize our payments, which actually by administration could do. But let's put, let, we can codify it if they want to. It says that first thing we're going to do, we're going to pay our interest, pay Medicare, pay Social Security, pay our, for our military, right? And then we're going to think about, you know, what's the most important thing? Like every family does. Every family says, you know, I would like to get that new car, but you know what? Right now I can't afford it, so I'm going to save my money for that. Or I'll see if I can get a better job before I, I do that. That's what families do. That's what we've got to do in government. When I was governor of Florida, I prioritized the, pe- the things that are important to people. I said, look, those are nice to have, but we're not going to do that now. And by doing that, we grew our economy. And by the time I finished, we had record funding for the things that were important to people, that people cared about. So, Senator Rick Scott, are you planning to run for president? I'm running for I'm running for re-election to Senate. My election is November uh, 24. Uh, there's going to be, I know a lot of people running for, for president. What I'm focused on is making sure that I keep doing my job. I've been traveling the state of Florida uh, for the last three weeks, talking to families. I'm in Orlando today. Uh, I'll be talking about religious freedom, which is very important uh, to families in Florida. Uh, and I'll be meeting with law enforcement, which having a low crime rate is also very important to families in Florida. Absolutely. Senator Rick Scott, God bless your daughter. I had three boys. She's got five. It's a lot. So I can't. (laughs) (laughs) It's easy being a grandparent. (laughs) I know. It is easy being a grandparent. It's great being a grandparent, actually. We both have grandsons named August, so we we have that in common. So it's great. Uh, That's that's a good name. It is a great name. Senator Scott, thanks for being with us today. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Joining me right now is uh, former Senator Kelly Leffler, uh, the CEO of Greater Georgia. And this week, um, she released a report of her impact report of the two organizations she was working with. And Kelly, we wanted to have you on to talk about that. So thank you so much for being here. Well, great to be with you all this morning, Martha and Pastor Ron. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Listen, Excellent. How so are y'all? We are great. So tell us, first of all, just give us an overview of Greater Georgia. Yeah, so in 2021, when I stepped out of the U.S. Senate, uh, you know, I'd gone to Washington as a really a citizen legislator, someone that had lived the American dream, worked my way up from a, a farm to um, being a CEO of a company and really went to Washington to be the voice for every Georgian. When I wasn't able to continue that work in Washington, I I knew my mission wasn't over and built Greater Georgia to make sure that we could amplify the voice of every Georgian who wants to make sure that our state uh, continues to protect strong values that let their family succeed. Um, We started Greater Georgia to grow the conservative movement, uh, defend election integrity, and to make sure that we're diversifying the conservative movement. So we held over a hundred roundtables, voter registration drives, went to supermercados, uh, did tremendous Hispanic community outreach, black community, Asian women, young people. And we saw that mobilizing on the ground can really move the needle. And we as, as a movement have to get back to that. Uh, there's a lot of you know palace intrigue around national politics. <laughs> But everything important that happens, happens locally. Just look at the front page of the Gainesville newspaper. It's 
community, it's kids, it's crime. Uh, these are the things that affect our way of life, and that's why I got so involved in the 22 cycle to reelect conservatives up and down the ballot. Well, and you've been involved in politics for a while. I mean, yes, you were the United States senator for a year, but you had been involved in helping candidates and doing work. What I love about what you did after the runoff in 2021 is that you didn't take your ball and go home. You you said, okay, what work needs to be done so that we can, one, restore confidence in the situation, but two, make sure that conservative voters are getting out to vote. And we have a unique opportunity now because fewer people are identifying by party on both sides we have a lot more people that are in the and i don't say the middle politically but they don't identify as a certain party and we need to reach all those people well that's right martha you've hit on a really important finding uh from 2022 and each election cycle is different but what's exciting about it is we can take a little bit from each cycle and build on it in 2020 it was election integrity making sure we restored confidence in the election uh, and to make sure people actually turned out to vote, um, and we diversify and grow the party. In 22, what we identified in Georgia is that while we are a red state, we are definitively a red state, that about 30% of voters don't really identify with either side. They're considered uh, swing voters or independents. And I don't know if, uh, you know, the, the national media is so hung up on Georgia being a blue state. They've forgotten that people have their own agency and they want to pick uh, based on policy and, and so forth. And, and that's why it's so important we do this work on the ground is to amplify what the conservative movement stands for and to bring them in and to let them know that we're working in their family's best interest. Uh, Kelly, let me let me say this real quick because you're I'm that I'm that type of person you're talking about, and you're right. You guys, that's really brilliant to to reach out to to people like me because I refuse to be put in a box. I'm not Democrat. I'm not Republican. I vote the issues, and when you have people that, uh, you know, let you know you're you're worth it. You you matter. That that goes a long way. Believe it or not. Well, absolutely that. That is where politics needs to happen, person to person, not in the mainstream media, not over in Davos, not in Washington, D.C. We need to be doing what was so gratifying that that we did in 21, starting outside an election year and reaching out to our neighbors, people that weren't in our movement. But we said, we want you to hear this message that your voice matters. And so many, too many people said to me, I've never met an elected official. I've never heard from a Republican or a conservative. And on the other hand, they said, I get texts from Stacey Abrams groups saying, if you're a minority, you vote Democrat. Well, you don't know. That's offensive and insulting. So we've got to find a, a common ground here that talks about the values um, that lets people live theirs, faith, family, freedom, hard work, the American dream. And, and get back to those fundamentals, just like we were getting back to the fundamentals in Georgia of working on the ground, being at the grassroots level, which is absolutely where I got my start in Georgia uh, Republican politics uh, about 12 years ago, and just making sure that we don't forget it's that personal connection. Well, and one of the sections of this report is a still red state, a wash in blue state money. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so... You know, the the headline is that Georgia's a red state, 
the the subhead is that despite the headwinds and that the biggest headwind is just the tsunami of blue state money that comes in here trying to flip our state and make us something we're not. And most of, if you look at um, all the candidates uh, from, you know, Governor Kemp, he was outraised by $35 million, but had a decisive victory. Uh, Herschel Walker was outspent by a hundred million dollars. Can you imagine having an excess of a hundred million dollars in negative ads, uh, character assassination ads dumped on your head so that the incumbent senator doesn't have to talk about his voting record? That's what's happening. But we have to learn from that and say that if we outwork them on the ground, as the Kemp campaign campaign did and proved that it's not all about money. Uh, it's about our neighbors. We can't be transactional with people or come around in an election year and say, hey, vote for us. Uh, I think Governor Kemp did a great job of showing over four years his track record is for all Georgians. You know, there was one thing that happened during this cycle, and I don't know if you looked at it or not, but I, I would love to know what you think about it if you if you have an opinion. Former President Trump raised over $100 million from small donors uh, that – Uh, They thought they were given to the 2022 election cycle. Only about $15 million of that money got spent. um, And he had a lot of candidates that he was involved in. Was that a problem at all? Did you hear that from people that I've already given? So I don't want to give, you know, to this this process. Well, I didn't hear that specifically, but I definitely heard donor fatigue. And that's something that we have to be very responsible with as organizations, as candidates, to be good stewards of hard-earned dollars that that we're entrusted with to get the work done. And that's certainly why another reason why I published this report, because I wanted our donors, our grassroots volunteers, our employees, our great team at small but highly efficient and effective team at Greater Georgia to see this is where your time effort and money went to um, in generating results. And coming out of the private sector as a businesswoman who, you know, my business was subject to audits every year because, you know, independent audit is part of Dodd-Frank, you know, every company. um, We published an annual report. and, And I just believe in transparency, accountability, and results. And every campaign and candidate and organization should do this. So one final question. I want to ask you a political question. We hit the debt ceiling today, but it looks like with special measures, they can go until June before any problems uh, come up. And, um, of course, the, the the old argument of, you know, Republicans want to, you know, throw grandma off the cliff and cut Medicare and Social Security is kind of what is being jumping up and down and being said to Republicans who are saying, wait a minute, you know, yes. We may have already committed to this money, but if we're going to increase the debt ceiling or if we're not going to increase the debt ceiling, we still have to have this conversation about spending. Are you, What are your thoughts on that? Well, $31.4 trillion of debt that we are putting on future generations. This isn't a political uh, question, as you know. This is a, a existential question in terms of the strength of this nation being the exceptional nation in the world and maintaining us as the world's reserve currency, us as oil being denominated in U.S. dollars, of having a strong military. So it goes back to spending. 
And we'd be remiss if we did not use this moment to say, can we have a discussion about spending? And the good news is, yes, we can, because Republicans are in charge of the House of Representatives finally. And they're going to be, that's the power of the purse. Uh, the Senate runs human resources, does all the nominees. The, the House runs uh, fiscal uh, spending, and obviously the Fed does the monetary stuff. So, look, I'm very encouraged that Leader McCarthy wants to have this conversation. But it's very telling that Joe Biden said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to negotiate on spending. So you see this president create problem after problem and refuse to take a role in solving it. And I think that's where we have to hold uh, Democrats accountable for saying we're just going to spend taxpayers' dollars with reckless abandon, um, you know, student loan forgiveness, eliminating uh, gas stoves, subsidizing the purchase of electric stoves and cars. Uh, enough. We have to draw the line and make sure people understand who's doing this. So, but, but look, we do long way to go. We do have to have the conversation about Medicare and Social Security because we've got you know, drop dead dates of where benefits will be cut by 20 or 30 percent if we don't do something by a certain date. How do we have that conversation in your mind? Well, it has to be fact-based. It, it, again, can't be a political conversation. Uh, we've got to make sure that we are reassure those receiving benefits that they are not going to be cut because that's not the intent. I've never heard a Republican say that. The uh, Democrats use that as a fear-mongering tactic. But we've also, as you point out, got to show the reality that we're going to hit a wall and we need to make sure that we're adjusting our budgets appropriately, not wasteful spending uh, on subsidizing uh, climate agendas around the world, sending money across the world. We've got to make sure we're serving the American people first. And if, if we can have a conversation that's based on facts, uh, that will be in our best interest, and we can't demagogue it and yeah. say the only reason the, Democrat, uh, the Republicans want to have this is because they want to cut your benefits, because it's just not true. Yeah, I mean, I use the analogy that if your kitchen's on fire, you can't be talking about making an addition. You know, you've got to put the fire out in your kitchen before, <laughs> you know, before yep. you... So we got to have the conversation. That's so, right. Kelly, if I'm listening or if I'm hearing you correct, those, those, uh, those people that are on, you know... Uh, Social Security and all these different things. What you're basically saying is the Republicans do not want to cut those things. Those things, are, that, that that's not going to happen, and they need to know that. Is that what you're saying? That's right. I mean, we, you've heard people talk about different things like means testing. Should, have, should millionaires and billionaires be, you know, I, I don't know. I need to look at it on a fact-based uh, analysis as well. But what we don't need to do is make this politicized so that we can't even have the conversation and solve the problem. And then we hit a wall and people who paid in who need these benefits over time are faced with a disaster. And so, yeah, we, we I've never heard a Republican say we should cut benefits. And I think what we have to do is rationally look at the programs and say, what is the long term outlook for the sustainability uh, and maintenance of these programs? Absolutely. Kelly Leffler, Greater Georgia, um, appreciate the work that you've done. I know you're going to keep doing it. And you know you've got me here and all the folks that support you here to help in any way they can. Well, thanks for all that y'all do and, and everyone, because it takes all of us working year-round every year, not just in an election year, and everyone's going to be focused very much on 24 
but we got municipal elections in 23. We can't let up. We got to keep growing. So thank y'all. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.